I think radio in its greatest capability does is it brings us all together to have a conversation about what we have in common or what has to be done for us to have things in common. Well, let's start with Prince. He had worked actively to remove a lot of his music from streaming services, except for Tidal. And so for people who wanted to dive into his work, if, if they didn't own his music, radio was one of the main sources on the day that he died for people to go and immerse themselves in the sounds of Prince. There was a feeling yesterday, I think, that a lot of people may have been listening to the same thing at the same time and sharing in that grief. This book is really about the aspirations, the highest aspirations of radio. Thinking about radio, not just as a technology, but as a set of values. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Klein. I'm one of your host producers of the program. My name is Paul Riesenel. I am the other host and producer. And with us via Skype from San Francisco, California, is Matthew Lassar, who is a co-founder and editor of Radio Survivor. Thank you for joining us, Matthew. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be with you guys. It's wonderful to have you here for the show, and uh, the reason we want to have you on is because... He should be on every day. He should be on every day, absolutely. And we know you're, you're in the middle of, of the uh, quarter, the academic quarter. You, are, you teach history at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and you have a new book that is just hitting the shelves right now called Radio 2.0. So, Matthew, uh, I think we just start by asking you, what do you mean by Radio 2.0? What does that mean? Well, Prager, ABC, this is published by ABC Prager, and it, they asked me to write it. And I, the book is about internet radio and radio in the internet digital era. But it shouldn't be understood as a book about you know, how to make lots of money on internet radio and welcome to the wonderful, exciting world about of internet radio. That's not really what it's about. It's really a history of radio that goes all the way back to the 1920s um, through the present and tries to understand how radio has changed in our time compared to the way it was um, at the beginnings and the dawn of broadcasting in the uh, 20th century and through the 19 and through the 1980s. And I posit that there are sort of two different ways to thinking about radio as it has evolved over the last century. Um, the first is uh, the way it was broadcast in the, um, in the early and mid-20th century, which I call Radio 1.0, and the way it is broadcast now, which is Radio 2.0. And Radio 1.0, I argue, and I think that this is true, was a very immediate, simultaneous um, uh, medium. People listened to radio via AM and then FM radio. They listened to it all together um, at the same time. Uh, they uh, they listened to it. They listened to it all. They listened to it synchronously, as uh, one internet radio pioneer um, would put it. And um, they listened to it as mass audiences, very conscious of the fact that they were mass audiences. Uh, they understood themselves as all, very large communities of people moving through time listening to the, th- the, same, the same things and having conversations about the same things um, through the early um, 20th century. And 
if you look at scholarship about that experience, particularly in the United States of America, there's roughly two schools of thought about that. I'm talking about radio from the 1920s through the 1980s. One is, looks very much at the way the Federal Communications Commission and before the Federal Radio Commission regulated that, um, that experience and sees a whole series of missed opportunities, really sees much more of an opportunity for public uh, media to have emerged during that period for um, the whole uh, industry to be regulated in ways which made it much less corporate, um, just basically sees it as a missed opportunity in a variety of ways, especially compared to other countries like the United Kingdom and places in Europe and elsewhere in Canada, where you had much more of a public broadcasting tradition. Another uh, school of thought argues um, that looks at that experience and sees all kinds of positive, interesting things about it in terms of how it helped the United States um, become more of a coherent nation. And my own perspective on this is, is that I think that that 20th century experience was, in fact, I don't have any disagreements with, um, with the idea that, you know, basically the Federal Communications Commission allowed for the corporatization of radio. Despite that, I think that radio was good for the United States of America in the 20th century. Radio 1.0 was good for um, radio in the, t- in the 20th century. Um, it, um, cre- it was part of a series of mediums um, that created a more coherent nation um, and a nation in which um, the mainstream um, constituency of that nation felt confident enough about itself to integrate new groups of people. It's not a coincidence that during the golden age of Radio 1.0, women got the vote, the New Deal happened, the civil rights movement happened, um, feminism, um, second wave feminism, um, you know, made its um, crucial contributions in the late 1960s and early 19th century. And the United States became more of a formally multicultural society. Um, so Radio 1.0, with its, um, with its immediate simultaneous tradition, I think, created um, a more coherent society that could then in turn create a more integrated society. That's such Radio- a, hey, Matthew, that's such a bold claim. And I, I know that a person like you would not make such a claim without, without uh, making an argument. So how, how can you say that? How can you say that radio is the reason why? Not, um, well, I'm not saying that radio is the only reason. I'm saying that radio is one of a series of mediums and one of a series of things that I think contributed to that. How so? I'm not, I'm not saying, well, I think that Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, for example, um, and Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats um, to the um, to the 1930s audience allowed radio allowed FDR to um, leap over the enormous opposition to the New Deal, which was a very good thing for the United States of America. It allowed him to leap over the um, enormous opposition um, to the New Deal of local newspapers, which were basically sort of these local fiefdoms, especially in um, Chicago, in Los Angeles. You had you had fierce opposition to the New Deal from newspaper owners. He was able to create this kind of simultaneous audience across the United States and very effectively promote the New Deal during those years. Um, during the civil rights era, many black um, um, activists glommed onto radio um, across the United States um, to launch civil rights campaigns. Radio was a crucial part of civil rights campaigns across the United States, in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Chicago, in Philadelphia. Um, activists who promoted local campaigns such as don't buy where you, don't buy where you can't work, 
Um, radio was a really crucial um, part of that, especially during the Top 40 era. Disco, radio um, and disco, I mean, um, uh, there are this, is a wonderful literature now about how um, disco, you know, created a much, promoted a much more complicated sexually and racially and generally uh, multicultural society. And disco played a really important role on the radio. I think that these, thing, that these things are real, were really important contributions um, to American society. And Radio, radio 1.0 was part of that. I'll give you an example, my favorite example, my favorite Radio 1.0 story, if, there's, if, 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 you, if you don't mind. Um, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, in in 1962, uh, uh, Jackie Kennedy managed to get um, France to allow the Mona Lisa uh, to be brought um, to the United States and and displayed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And as a little kid, I like a, like all kinds of people in New York, um, dutifully went there. You know, we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, looked at it for three seconds, thought, "Wow, that's really small," you know, and then went to the snack bar. Um, but during that, during that same time, um, WABC, which had a huge um, audience across the United States, uh, AM music radio in um, New York City, and which broadcast all kinds of other places, uh, Rick Sklar got this idea. He was one of the progenitors of Top 40 Radio, and he was a program director um, at, um, um, at WABC. He had this idea, why don't we invite everybody who listens to WABC to send in their drawing or painting of the Mona Lisa. And he took this to the, to, to the manager who thought it was crazy and they had a big argument about it. And finally, they, he, he talked them into it and they decided that there would be four prizes, one for the best version of the Mona Lisa, one for the worst version of the Mona Lisa, one for the biggest and one for the smallest. Um, and they, got, they sent it to corporate. Corporate said, okay, you can do it, but who's going to judge the contest? And finally, they hit upon the idea of allowing Salvador Dali, the surrealist painter, to, um, to, to do the contest and uh, to judge the contest. And the contest um, went through, and they said, send us your copies of the Mona Lisa. And everybody in New York and elsewhere sent thousands, 15,000 versions of the Mona Lisa um, to WABC. And all of those versions, were there were so many versions, they had to hire, they had to rent out a department store floor to show them all. The biggest ones were so big they had to be shown on a polo field. And the smallest was a micro dot version, which could only be seen in a microscope. And that kind of civicness and um, level of community, I think, was um, not atypical of Radio 1.0, despite all of its sins, its commerciality, um, it's, you know, capitalist mentality, all of these things. And a large portion of that was is that despite the fact that uh, the corporatization of radio did happen in the, um, in the 20th century, despite all of that, the Federal Communications Commission did regulate radio enough, did tell radio, we expect certain things from you. We expect ser public service announcements. We expect fairness. We expect public affairs programming from you. Enough that radio was responsive to what essentially were nation-building impulses that came out of the first regulator of radio, that being Herbert Hoover in the 1920s. And I think the WABC was a sort of a, that, that, that Mona Lisa experience was a kind of a function of that. Uh, so that's that's my response, Eric, to your 
to your challenge. I think that there are many examples like that of, of how important Radio 1.0 was to the, um, to the building and expansion of a more a coherent national culture for the United States in the 20th century. And so, Matthew, your argument that about Radio 1.0 and 2.0 is less about technology, although technology is bound up in it. Because I think when we, we you know, this, this numeration system, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, comes right out of uh, software development, effectively, right? That we, yes. you know, we would think of uh, when Microsoft Office version one, Microsoft Office version five, et cetera. Um, and so in our, in our minds, it's very caught up with technological advances almost to the exclusion in some ways of, of other aspects. And you're making an argument that there is really a change in, in both uh, transmission and reception, both in terms of the intent, the intent and programming of radio, as well as who receives it and how. Is, is, is that kind of correct? You know, is that really the transition from 1.0 to 2.0? Well, the crucial mo- yes, the answer the answer to your question is yes. Um, the that's the short answer. The longer answer is is that crucial things started happening in the 1980s, that and the 1970s and the 1980s that um, that it, that didn't entirely end Radio 1.0, but eclipsed it to a large extent. One of those was um, the deregulation of broadcasting, which took place. Um, in the 1980s under the Reagan administration and the public response to some degree to that um, deregulation, especially in the United States, which was to start to really glom onto personalized or individualized um, listening mechanisms. The, the Walkman most, the early, era. The, early, the earliest and the most important of these, which predates the Internet, um, was the Sony Walkman, um, which, which, which was touted. Um, in the 1980s, as something that would really blog that would really block out public space. I mean, if you read articles and praise of the Walkman in the 19 in the 1980s, especially um, from even syndicated columnists like George Will, they said well, how wonderful it is that it's blocking out the city. It's blocking out that horrible thing. Uh, he, you know, his 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 phrasing, the boombox, <laughs> which was kind of a you know. You know, the, that's the, a dog you know, whistle this, if I've ever heard one. You no, know, really. It, you know, this hard, and it was, and it was, it, 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 and there was a very racialized tone to all of that. Yeah, there, the the boombox has some other uh, words that I won't even uh, speak into this microphone. There was a very there was a very racialized tone to a lot of the angry writing about the boombox, and everybody, a lot of people who wrote about um, the Walkman said, "Here's this great new thing where you put it on your head and you don't have to listen to other people and other stuff." You can just be in your own little world, and I, and and I argue that that's that that's really um you know the beginning of all this. And I'm not saying it's bad, you know. I'm not saying it's it's an it's an inherently bad thing. It's obviously one. I had a Walkman back in those days. And we should I, let listeners know just in case. I feel very silly, but there's a possibility that someone listening doesn't know that the Sony Walkman both played cassettes and had a radio. Or some did. Yeah. Not everyone had no, a radio. Course. But you could get ones with radios. Yeah, yes. no, I had I had one that had a radio, and you could re- record radio stuff on it. My mine could record right. radio stuff. You but can I make, really, you can make I, an air check. Yeah, but I really used it just basically to listen to um to, to cassettes. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, Clear Channel emerged during this period, and Clear Channel invented a new a new business model for radio, and it was a radio, it was a model that really 
de-emphasized the importance of audiences. It basically, they basically invented, Clear Channel basically invented the idea that you, that audiences didn't matter so much if you wanted to make money with radio stations. That basically, if you cut costs, aka, hence the sobriquet cheap channel, um, you consolidated as much as you could. And even before the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Clear Channel was clearly consolidating using local management agreements, um, pushing the envelope about how many radio stations it could own um, um, through through the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, the, and, that if, and that if you really turned um, your air sound into sort of air infomercial-like um, programming, catering to potential um, advertisers, that you didn't really need audiences that much. And the public began to increasingly respond to that by glomming onto these personalized um, technologies. Then came the internet. Then came the enormous, especially in the later 1990s um, um, and, and the early 2000s, the, you know, the, the enormous almost social civil war that took place over Napster and Nutella and Grokster and all of those things. And then that sort of resolved it by, by, um, by the early 2000s with the ultimate personalized um, music listening technology, uh, uh, Pandora. And it is at that moment that Radio 2.0 takes center stage. One of the things that I point out, however, is that even in the, in the early years of Radio 1.0, there were visionaries who were thinking about the possibilities of Radio 2.0, and they were trying to um, think through how Radio 2.0 would work out. And one of them was Bertolt Brecht, the wonderful um, uh, 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 cultural force Bertolt Brecht, who sort of wondered out loud in the 1920s about the possibilities of a radio broadcasting system that allowed the listener to speak as well as hear and to bring this person into a relationship rather than isolating um, them. And as I survey Radio 2.0, and you guys know that I've been writing about Radio, Radio 2.0 for um, uh, Radio Survivor for a very, very long time, very steeped in all of these things, having a wonderful time with Turntable FM and Plug DJ and 8-Tracks and all these things. I mean, I'm a big fan of all of these things. The question that I ask um, at the end of the book is, how can we merge the best of Radio 1.0 and the best of Radio 2.0 to get back to that integrative audience experience that I think that the United States of America and the world really needs um, at this time? And I look at various um, um, ways that that's happened, the ways that succeed. I look at the United Kingdom's World Have Your Say service, which, as I think you both know, I'm a big fan of. And that's sort of the end of the um, the book. One of the things I say at the end of the book is, is that I'm less interested in um, uh, what the future of radio is, and I'm more interested in what we want the future of radio to be. So I want to kind of uh, kind of pick this apart a little bit. I think you've laid it out very clearly, but um, you know, there's certain parts I know I'm going to hear about it. So I want to sort of make a first a point of clarification is is that Clear Channel, the company itself, did not actually exist until the ni- late 1990s. But I think what you mean when you talk about the Clear Channel, you're talking about its 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 precursors, which I mean, they're material precursors in which they were absorbed into the company that became Clear Channel. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. We're we're basically yeah moved from this notion of you you own a few stations, 
uh, in a market and, and, and a collection of stations nationwide, but they're mostly run, uh, you know, according to that radio 1.0 model. If the, if it was FM, it tended to be oriented towards a local market. If it was AM, um, especially larger clear channel style stations, meaning that they covered a lot of territory, uh, they, they would cover regions like, like, like WABC, which, you know, wasn't merely New York, but, but a good portion of the Northeastern seaboard. And that these companies uh, began to operate differently. And you talked about LMAs, which are local marketing agreements. And these were ways of sort of uh, subverting the ownership caps by uh, one company agreeing basically to manage and operate a station that remained the property of another company. So, That's right. so that would be uh, I go to you and say, look, it looks like your station's not doing so well. You hold on to the title. But we'll basically supply the programming and sell the ads and, and basically pay you rent on that uh, was a way to sort of expand the, the basically the number of stations you operate in any given market nationwide without moving the number of how many stations you actually own. So that was some, the early days uh, as the FCC became looser during sort of the uh, Reagan, George H.W. Bush eras and, and of course, so, monumentally in the Clinton era. So clear channel – is not specifically just a corporation. It's an abstraction that stands for a style of radio. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I think that's the way the way we, we would want to put it. So I just want to want to put that bit of clarity in there uh, because I know someone will come back and say, Clear Channel didn't exist in 1978. But the style of radio began. But right. Well, the, a, com- a company that was acquiring these radio stations did. Yes. Um, absolutely. And... And you know, and that was pushing these ownership limits at that time, and then doing these loaner, these local uh, management agreements to to push that boundary even further. Um, but so, you know, in in terms of this shift, then right to something to to personalization, right? And you say it's the the de-emphasis of audiences. And I wonder if you can if you can sort of elaborate on this idea because I think you know if we think about commercial radio. Um, right. The, the whole deal with commercial radio is an advertiser pays money to expose an audience to their advertisement, right? That's the whole point with no audience. There's no advertisers, right? And, and, and a, the size of an audience is measured through ratings, um, is what dictates how much an advertiser pays. They pay, you know, basically for each year. And it's, and it's similarly true for the commercial services of, of Pandora. They pay for the number of people who, are, who receive this message. But there's, but there's a really big difference between Pandora and Radio 1.0. And that, and that obviously is, is that when I listen to Pandora and you listen to Pandora, even if we have similar individual channels, it's rare, except of course, if we, you know, we share each other's playlists or something like that, and that doesn't happen that much, um, that we can't say to each other, did you just hear, did you just hear what was on Pandora? Right. Right. I mean, you you know, you, I can't say that to you and you can't say that to me, um, the way you can with, um, you know, with, with audience, with, uh, with what I call audience-based radio. And that is really the crucial difference. And there's a lot of stuff out now, um, out there now, which, in which you can't do that. And that's the, that's what I think is the crucial difference here. I was, yeah, I'm glad Paul asked that question. Cause one of the things I flagged so far is that I would love for you to define that, uh, that abstraction of audiences. Cause that's a word that I know, but the way that you're using it is, is special. And so I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. You look at Spotify or, um, Pandora 
um, or a variety of other um, personalized services. Um, what you're getting is the way Pandora it works is, is of course, is that you know there's this thing called a genome. You turn on Pandora, you create some kind of a channel. It listens to what you pick, what you say you like and what you don't like, and it creates a genome, uh, basically a, a profile of you based on the the sort of the genes that it's defined of in, of, of each of each thing that you that each thing that you um that you listen to. Um, is it a man singing? Is it a woman singing? What genre is it? What kind of musical instruments? How long is it? Those sort of things. And it then serves up a, an extraordinarily individualized, personalized thing to you. And I think that that is sort of the crucial um, um, component, the, you know, the core component of Radio, of Radio 2.0. Um, having said that, I think, uh, I think that there is a lot of potential and, and real Radio 1.0 in the radio 2.0 world as we um, experience it today. I think that, for example, I look at, I talk in the book about a wonderful podcast, my favorite podcast, Welcome to Night Vale, which is this wonderful podcast about this imaginary southwestern um, little town where all of this strange mystical stuff happens all the time. Dinosaurs suddenly show up at local city council meetings. Um, uh, Cats, um, floating cats appear in the bathrooms of office buildings. Um, in, you know, there's an, an invisible lady who lives in your home um, who is constantly referred to. And all of this strange mystical stuff happens. And it ha it, 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 it's all narrated via a community radio station, um, in the, um, um, which basically talks about these things and talks about all the town's events um, through this community radio station and an individual who who is the main broadcaster of the community radio station, a guy named Cecil. Yeah, single and, uh, mic radio theater. And and so that you have this remarkable thing in which you have this celebration of Radio 1.0 within the context of Radio 2.0, and it is listened more or less simultaneously, although obviously different people listen to it at different times. Um, it is listened more or less simultaneously um, uh, by hundreds of thousands of people. And for a while, it was the most popular podcast um, in the United States and possibly the world. And it is an example to me of uh, the merging of Radio 1.0 and 2.0. Simultaneously, because when the new episode came out, all of the fans uh, would jump on it at the same time. So That's within, right. the, within the span of a week... Everyone was listening to that episode. Everybody was listening to it. And as you know, um, one of my students at UC Santa Cruz, Aiden Herrick, is a huge fan of, of, of Welcome to Night Vale and writes about it, writes about the episodes and what's going on in the episodes um, for Radio Survivor. Yeah, I understand there's a huge online fan base. So, Matthew, then audience, it seems like a critical aspect of it is, is being mass, right? It's being more, you know, crucially more than one. But it seems to me... It, it, it's it's about encouraging conversations. Um, it, audience is about aud real audience is about encouraging conversations. It's about you and I both listening to the same thing more or less at the same time, and being able to have a conversation about it. So you're um, you're really that that, you're making like a radical definition, and by radical I mean going to the root, right? So the root yes. of, when we think of the core of an audience comes from the notion of people assembled in a theater. Right, um, who are together experiencing something simultaneously in person, and to some extent, right, may in the confines of that theater, 
actually converse or create new new connections around that experience, that mutually shared simultaneous experience. And that experience might happen, that, that those connections might be forged uh, there immediately in, you know, uh, in situ, or they might be forged down the road, you know, and, and, and you know, in a way that's sort of like uh, deadheads, right? Uh, form these long lasting relationships in this ex- mutually shared experience of going to see the Grateful Dead, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe multiple times. And that, ex- and that they're, being part of the Grateful Dead audience is more than just being in a seat in a stadium or, or, or an arena, but goes on to, to maybe define even their lives down the line because it begins to create a community that, that they're a part of that's based upon a shared experience. Is that, is that kind of really what you mean in terms of an audience? Um, it's a shared experience. It's not necessarily an agreed upon experience. Okay. In other words, in other words, people listen uh, they don't necessarily agree. Um, they talk to each other. They just—they may disagree. They may agree. In some instances, I mean, what you're describing with the Great Grateful Dead is a whole lot of people who agree on how wonderful the Grateful Dead is. And I've, I've, you know, I've been to many Grateful Dead concerts back in the day, and I used to refer to the Grateful Dead as the world's greatest audience, um, because you know I more or less went there mostly to hang out with the audience. I mean, you know, going to, I remember once going to the Oakland Coliseum. And just and spending very little time looking at the Grateful Dead, and most of my time just wandering around in the lobby and everywhere else where people were sort of doing all these whirling dervish things and 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 stuff, and just enjoying the audience more than I was enjoying um, the Grateful Dead. But um, what I think radio, in its greatest uh, uh, capability, does is it brings us all together to have a conversation about what we have in common or what has to be done for us um, to have things in common. That's what I'm talking about here. And so you say that your sort of final point is you're not really concerned about the future of radio per se, but how do, how do we make it what we want? And so I'm going to ask you. I, there is, there is, the reason why I say that is because so much of discussion about radio is where it's going to go mm-hmm. in this kind of, it's almost like this sort of almost helpless uh, uh, technology-driven way of thinking about radio um, in which, you know, the technology is just taking us in this way or that way as if we don't really have anything to do with it. And I think that we do have a lot to do with it. Right. What were you going to? Yeah. I mean, right. It's the argument that, that, you know, technology is not, is, is not a, a singular force that in fact, and as we often argue here at Radio Survivor, many, many decisions made by many people, uh, formed the shape of the technologies that we use, whether it's deregulation of radio ownership, which led to certain circumstances. But, you know, and it didn't necessarily inherently lead to the clear channel, although the writing, I think we could argue, was even on the wall in 1996 to those in the know. Uh, that is, but that in that the state of radio we have now was not an, an inevitable outcome of technological change, but was the result of specific choices made by specific people, specific industries, specific regulators that guided this path and made certain outcomes more likely than others. And so I think, right. So your argument then is looking forward then and understanding that this is, this is how uh, histories take place. 
we have the power and the opportunity to make decisions that will shape the future of radio, not merely have to sort of be stuck in a, in a kind of uh, uh, pitched battle against inevitability, right? Uh, that, that, that there's not sort of a, a technological teleology uh, which, in which we are just uh, really just pawns or not even so much pawns that we are just sort of helpless uh, people swept up in, in, into the uh, – in, into the twister, right? That that's going to pick us up and, and spit us out. And so, where do you see what are what are some intersections, or where are some uh, places where uh, you think uh, folks who are community minded, who are uh, want to retain or even maybe enhance and grow a certain type of community and audience experience. Where do you think there's some great potential for that action to happen? I think, and I strongly believe that the, the place where the place where all of that can happen, radio 2.0 and 1.0 at this point uh, can merge. One of the, at least one of those places is in these wonderful, um, community radio experiments that are emerging um, across the United States and that have been followed by um, Radio Survivor. I'm talking about um, a lot of these low-power FM radio stations. Talking about, I, talk, I write about um, you know, things like Our, Time, Our Times FM, uh, uh, a community radio station that um, actually came out to some degree out of a, out of a college radio um, fight. Um, 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 uh, in the United States, um, uh, Hollow Earth Radio um, up in Seattle. Uh, these experiments, I think, have tremendous possibilities. Hollow Earth Radio, which sort of was, was first emerged out of the Second Life um, uh, uh, virtual website, it was sort of a radio station hmm. within the Second Life um, virtual uh, website. How about and now that? And now it's becoming become a low power FM radio station. But I also feel rather strongly, and I don't really talk about this in, in this book, but I also feel rather stro- very strongly that there needs to be much more support for public media in the United States. I've, I've sort of reached my limit in terms of listening to people talk about how if we just use this gadget or this app or this technology or something like that, um, our radio stations, you know, radio, you know, radio stations will be able to survive and sustain larger, ever, you know, ever larger audiences. At some point, we need to have a renewed discussion in the United States, not just about platforms, um, but about how, about how to support those platforms. And I just don't see um, how those platforms could be supported um, just just by um, uh, uh, um, um, enhanced underwriting and new technologies. Having said that, I think that a lot of these radio stations are becoming uh, centers of all kinds of different kinds of radio listening, um, whether it be YouTube, streaming, AMFM, podcasts, a whole lot of different kinds of radio listening are emerging out of these, um, these different radio stations. And one of the things I, I point out at the end of the book is that if you look really broadly at the history of media, going all the way back to maybe the 8th century, uh, if you look at the way we've um, looked at print, uh, we've always consumed print in a wide variety of ways. Holy books, newspapers, uh, ticker tape on on telegraph tape, all kinds of different ways that we've looked at print. We've read print in all these different ways. In a sense, the 20th century experience of listening to radio, just listening to it the most part 
um, on AM and FM, I mean, as, as a mass broadcasting experience, was it, it, that may be atypical of the broad history of listening to audio um, as communities. It may be that the people who listened to AM and FM in the 20th century were really unique and atypical in terms of the way they're going to listen to radio. And that now, um, in terms of building community, we're going to listen to radio in all kinds of different ways um, at the same time. And a really good, successful example of that, I think, is BBC World Have Your Say. BBC World Have Your Say is really... Um, an example where you know you can listen to it on YouTube, you can listen to it um, um, on AM and FM, you can listen to it on the internet, and it and it and it takes in this you know global conversation about whatever is happening. Um, can, can you describe it for people who have not heard it? World Ra- BBC World Have Your Say is basically a na- a global conversation about the great of the most important events that are happening right now. Basically, what the reporters do is they say you know they've got. You know they've had it around for a really long time, and they basically say to the the English and non English speaking world, call us, text us, face us, Facebook us, you know, send us all this information, communicate with us, and we will have you on in these sort of group conversations from all over the world to talk about what's going on in Syria, you know what you know what's going on, what's going on right now in Turkey, um, what's going on in terms of um, the, the struggles against terrorism in Nigeria. And they'll have all of these people on talking with each other simultaneously in all kinds of different contexts and, and people listening from all over the all over the world. And I think that this is a this is a for me um, the exemplar of 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 the merging of Radio 1.0 and 2.0. I was I'm <laughs> I'm excited because one of the um one of the things that you'd mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation about when you when you referenced Bertolt Brecht uh, seeing the potential for 1.0 radio to to open the phones, I think is what you were really referring to, to become more like Radio 2.0. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about that that long transition towards. I mean, that's how I thought of it as a radio person: opening the phones, like letting the listeners call in and be on the radio, is is really the beginning of that. I think, and so. Well, I- I think I need to, at this point, um, acknowledge Paul, you, Paul. Um, you have a really good, back when you, back before Radio Survivor, and you were doing your media geek, geek thing, your media geek website. His, his proto-podcast. Really yes, his proto-podcast. You, you did a really good um, interview with a scholar named um, Daniel Gilfillan um, about Bertolt Brecht. And one of the things that he points out is that Brecht was, in a sense, looking at the past when he was thinking about the future of radio. He was looking at all these interesting experiments that were going on in Germany with radio, and he was also looking at the wireless tel- telegraphy um, um, experience of the late 19th and early 20th century, when you had all this one-to-one, interesting one-to-one communication um, between people, what one author has famously called the Victorian Internet. And he was trying to think about how that past can be integrated into what was becoming increasingly a mass broadcasting present. And so I, I see this other strain here then, right? Is, is, is there's this de- rethinking of audience, right? So it seems like a mark of radio 1.0, especially, uh, you know, in the, in the mid century of the 20th century, is that it was truly mass and in many ways nationwide, if not if not 
heavily regional, right? It brought yes. people together, not not merely not merely the the uh, you know Brooklyn, but you know like most of the Eastern Seaboard, and there was still national programming um, into the into the nineteen fifties and early sixties that could that would cover the entire country, and that in radio it seems has has faded significantly in prominence. Um, in its place, and especially you know, you make this emphasis on low power FM. We have smaller audiences, but I think it sounds like you're making the argument that small is not unimportant, and small is not without power. I, am I reading you correctly? Well, I'm. Well, I guess what I'm making making a point is is that what you have in these in these in these um, low power FM radio stations is you have the beginnings of a revival of real audience-based radio, community-based audience-based radio, which has been to a large extent, I think, abandoned by commercial radio um, in, the United, in the United States um, on many, many, many levels. Um, and um, I think that there's a lot of potential there. I think it's going to need a lot more help than it's getting right now for it to really take off. Um, but um, I think the potential is there um, for that. You know, one of the things that I'm following right now for Radio Survivor, and I'm being a bit of an advocate for it, is, is that um, it, here in Santa Cruz there's a radio station called KUSP. It's a public radio station. For a very long time it broadcast on um, NPR programming, and it did so very unsuccessfully. It went into a lot of debt. Uh, there was a, it was trying to sort of compete with a uh, public radio station in Monterey, and it didn't go very well, and eventually it gave up on this. And now it is, um, it is, it is embraced to sort of an adult album alternative format in which it has basically these wonderful local DJs who play all of this new rock and roll that I've never heard of and that I was very unfamiliar with and I'm enjoying tremendously. And it's trying to rebuild a new audience around that. And it's trying to do it at the same time that in San Francisco, KFOG is kind of tanking, um, being, you know, its DJs are basically being laid off by Cumulus, which has borrowed an enormous amount of money. KFOG uh, would be the album-oriented rock station of, of the San Francisco Bay Area. Of the, of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so it, in a sense, um, it is the uh, fate of public media to, uh, to take up uh, the, the responsibility for uh, recreating Radio 1.0 that um, corporate America has more or less abandoned. I think that's a great uh, place to wrap up there, Matthew. Um, you know, your book is now available, Radio 2.0, and uh, we should make it very prominent <laughs> on the Radio Survivor Yeah, I hope website. we talk about it again uh, soon. I don't, I don't know if we're – I think it's a fine time to finish, but I don't know if we've uh, exhausted the topic, as it were. No, I can't imagine that we've exhausted the topic because we are in that shift, Right. Yeah, we are in that shift. And this is book this book is basically, you know, it's kind of a thinking out loud about it. It's not I'm not making any attempt to be the definitive history of any of this. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage a conversation about um about about this about this and about and about um why radio is so important um to our society as, as you know in lo- in terms of localities, regions and as a nation and um and, and how we can get to radio helping the United States feel like a more coherent society. Again, I think I, I, I think I can say without fear of contradiction 
that there's a lot of concern in the United States right now about how deeply polarized the American society um, has become, especially with this election. I mean, I don't think there's anybody here who's going who's gonna to argue with that. And so, the, you know, the question becomes, how can we have a more coherent national conversation in which we don't all see each other as, the, as, as blood enemies, um, like so much media encourages us to do? Yeah, I was going to say, like, there's a lot of radio in the mix there in that, uh, in that polarization. There are some well, voices. Well, I, I talk about that, of course, in my um, book. I talk about um, uh, Rush Limbaugh and Infowars and all of, these, all of this very paranoid radio that has become, you know, hate radio that has become so, um, so, so uh, Dominant. crucial and endemic in our time. Great. And also, I, um, conversation is the, is the word of the day, and we would definitely encourage any listener to Radio Survivor to engage in that, in that activity. Uh, send us your emails to podcast at radiosurvivor.com on this topic. Send us your voicemail commentaries on this topic and, and, uh, it's a two-way street here on this program. And Matthew, I, I did, you know, I I like that call to action that that you lay out, right? That you're trying to spark a conversation, to think about what we want radio and audio media to be and to look like. Because I think that that you're almost defining for me in this very moment what perhaps the contribution of Radio Survivor can be not just not just the podcast but the website and all of our efforts in 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 this coming times because i i I think and i'm going to speak just completely off the cuff here um but so glad to have you part of it is that you know i think a frustrating part about doing radio survivor is often that being a reporter of what goes on at radio can be boring and and frustrating and disheartening sometimes because it's hard to know why why we re- why you might report on some things you know i think i've i've said you know i don't know if i've ever said it on the podcast i've said it maybe at radio survivor certainly said it to both of you at times i'm not interested in in who's the new program director at some station Absolutely. Right. I'm not, you know, or who got promoted or who bought what station at some point. I am interested in larger implications, right? And I think, Matthew, your coverage, your your focus on KUSP in particular is important. It's important for what's going on in, to the for the people of, of this of the Bay Area, uh, of listeners in Santa Cruz. But I think it stands in as an example Right, and I think that's why you you're you're attending so much attention to it, of of a process and a rethinking and an active, engaged, community inclusive rethinking of what a radio station can be, what role it can play in a community, and you know while it it was sort of brought on by uh, crisis by the fact that the station was basically running out of money and couldn't afford to to be the station it was there was and, and I'm not sure anyone sat down and designed that it would be sort of this uh, it would be community outreach it's just sort of got forced really to happen and yet it did and there was a rethinking and, and an active engaged rethinking amongst listeners supporters and staff members of what that station could be and that is a role I think we can play, and it's a hard one to play. But to me, it's a much more interesting one than just telling you what's happened here in radio, and 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 it's figuring out you know how do we how do we inspire those conversations, and I don't feel like we've done that yet. 
<laughs> Although I really hope your book is is a um, is a salvo is 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 helps to uh, is is part of uh, an enzyme that can catalyze uh, this conversation because of the very nature that it's a book. Um, and and who may read it and who may uh, be exposed to it, who who may not be exposed to what we do at Radio Survivor. But it's also what I'd love to hear, you know, what I hope we can hear more from Radio Survivor listeners and readers about. And I'm not always sure how to do it um, in print in particular uh, on the website, but I I think that it's a direction that gives me – that excites me, I think, Matthew, that, that, that you've defined it in that way. Thank you, Paul. I mean, I, there's no question about it that I would not have been able to write this book without reading what and, and participating in Radio Survivor over the last, um, I don't know how many, how many more, how many years have we been doing this now for? I think, I think we're, six, yeah, we're, seven, we're hitting on to six, seven this year. Yeah. Seven, you know, reading um, what you and Jennifer and now Eric um, have been, you know, listening to what you have been saying. Um, I would not have been able to write this book. And this book is really about um, the aspirations, um, of the highest aspirations of radio. Thinking about radio, not just as a technology, but as a set of values, um, a value of, 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 mm-hmm. of social te- connectivity um, values. And um, I guess I'm just going to pitch Radio Survivor now to our readers because <laughs> um, I, I think I, I think it has to it has to be done in order for us to do this in order for us to, to carry on that mission um, we really need um, our readers to support us support us on our Patreon campaign um, e- you know even one dollar a month um, would be a, a really great thing we're trying to get to um, five hundred dollars a month um, so that we can um, we, we could take radio survivor to the next level and it's at moments like this that it's really important for you to understand that that won't happen unless um, you're not only unless you listeners are not only part of the conversation but part of the support for that conversation wonderfully said Matthew you go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and I think yes a part of that $500 goal is to get the show every week into the necessary shape so that it can be distributed so both in terms of the editing and a little bit of polish as well as the outreach and uh, having the right platform means to do it to get it out to community radio stations and not commercial stations around the country around the world whoever would want to carry it and I think right because then we we're bring that conversation to these stations as well, to listeners who who may often think about what they would like to hear and why they'd like to hear, but but very often don't have the channel back or, or even haven't don't have the contextualization or haven't been able to put it into our, you know, you know, because they're not radio researchers. We don't expect people to be radio researchers to have thought about it in, in a sort of broader context. I'd love to I think it's it, it's it's empowering in some ways for people to understand that the station that they love uh, their local community radio station is part of a movement and is part of uh, of movements that have happened through time and part of of that comes from this place of values. It comes from this place of inspired uh, and sometimes uh, you know foolhardy uh, aspirations for creating not just better radio but 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 better communities and a better world yeah. through it. And I would say also that we would want audiences to understand that as part of a movement. Uh, things things don't always stick that that a radio station that you think is a mm-hmm. permanent fixture of your landscape uh is not that 
it, right. it needs it needs the love and support of the audience for it, it to remain. It is an ecosystem, and it needs nutrient and water and sunshine uh, to attention help. Attention and money. Attention and, and, and uh, money to help carry it through. And I would love, I mean, that's, I think to me, you, you've crystallized what is the greatest potential, why, why it should, why it is important to bring uh, our show, I think, to community stations and college stations and other non-commercial stations around the country is just to help stimulate that conversation. And, and community stations are wonderfully open, right? Places in general. Um, but yet the most common interaction is by listening. The second, probably most common interactions by donating and, um, volunteering, yeah, and volunteering probably the third, and yet you know on on the air, right? There doesn't tend to be much of a conversation about what the station can be or what radio can be. It happens, but most often probably during pledge drives, and it's understandable because the station, if it's just meta all the time, if it's all about itself, uh, that's going to grow boring. It's it's about the music, it's about the ideas, it's about the the uh, it's about giving uh, a platform and a microphone to people who might not otherwise have it. But I think it's off. Also important to insert that conversation here and there of the why and how and what it could be. And, uh, you know, I think I really appreciate the, the perspective of your book and the trajectory of your book, Matthew, because of the fact that you're not trying to own a definition, but you're trying to uh, elaborate the ingredients of a definition and what and, 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 and a historical uh, precedent and process. And and to open it up, and instead of uh, you know being either giving us doomsday or giving us uh, you know saying well, but we are either destined for greatness or destined for for disaster, you're saying in fact still the uh, the future is our hands, and they're giving us ways to think about it so that maybe we're in a better shape to start making some of these decisions and putting our efforts. And our wallet sometimes in the places where we think they will do the most good. So again, thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, the Mutual Admiration Society is uh, we don't it should not be the, well, the title well, of the, the if, podcast. If, if, if this goes into a second edition, I will summarize. I will transcribe what you just said and, <laughs> and put it in the conclusion. So uh, your book is available now. We will we will put uh, links up on on our website, and um, if you buy it through Amazon through our website, it does help us out a little bit. We'll get a yes, we'll get a couple of shekels. Uh, we want to be completely upfront about that, um, and we we would appreciate it. Um, it is Radio Two Point Matthew. Shekels are good. Shekels are good. Matthew Lassar is a co-founder of Radio Survivor, um, and this is your third book, correct? Yes, it is third yes. book. So, Be, but also speaking of community resources, uh, go buy it from your local neighborhood bookstore if you, unless you're already going to Amazon. That's true. Go, Absolutely, go through the radio. Yeah, we're we're, we're, we're very happy for you to support your local bookstore. I think same, we need to get same a, ideas. Uh, community radio stations they go away when yeah. you don't show them some love. Absolutely, go around the corner, and if they don't have it on the shelf, ask them to order for you. Absolutely, but if Amazon's your only way to do it, then 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 please use our our link uh, to do so, uh, Matthew. Matthew has two other books about the Pacifica Foundation that tell the really vital and important history of that organization. And of course, we'd love to hear from everyone listening. Send us an email podcast at radiosurvivor.com or you can tweet us at Radio Survivor. And we sure would appreciate it if you would rate us or leave a review on iTunes. 
Uh, that's how so many people find new podcasts. And when you rate and review us, it helps us kind of bubble up in the ranks. That's how iTunes knows that people care about our show. Yeah. So it, it's amazing that just it's it's actually fascinating that just a few extra stars, a few people just clicking and rating or just one or two reviews um, can really make us bubble up a lot of spots in our category, which is the uh, news and politics category. So really uh, just take that moment. You, you can do it right in the podcast app. So if you're using your if you use an iOS device and that's how you listen to podcasts, you can do it right in the app. Um, you don't have to really go anywhere. It's too bad there isn't a like a meta media category. We could we could maybe dominate yeah, I know, there. I know. And now and now on I guess the media and us, we'll we have would. to get links up. We're now available in the new Google Play podcast I'm section. Pub. Ooh, Google Play podcast. Google Play podcast debuted uh, this week as we are as we're recording on uh, on April nineteenth, I believe. And um, we're available there as well uh, for those folks who are on Android devices uh, and who are use uh, the newest version of Google Play. And I believe you can rate and review us there too. They're so finally getting into podcasts. Let's not leave the Android folks out either. We really appreciate everyone. It took a long time for Google to pay attention it took to podcasts. A long time. So we we appreciate. A little late to the game, Google. <laughs> We appreciate every moment you spend with us. And thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. And thank you, Eric, for uh, coming and doing this with me. As always, a real pleasure. Thank you. Coming up next on the program in just a moment, College Radio Watch with Jennifer Waits. Stay tuned. Jennifer, welcome to Radio Survivor. I'm so happy to have you on for College Radio Watch. I'm always happy to be here, Eric. Two topics for today's program, and I don't know where to start. Um, well, let's start with Prince. Oh. So when we, as we go to record, um, as we go to record on Friday, April 22nd, um, Prince, the artist known as Prince, uh, passed away yesterday. So, oh, so many feelings. Well, yes, there's been a lot. So we found out uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, that Prince had died, and there's been a huge radio reaction to this, and a number of stations sort of spontaneously decided to start playing all Prince music yesterday. Yeah, as is the only appropriate reaction. <laughs> it's like a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, there's this, there's this desire, I think, when when a musician dies to want to dive into their work and, and, you know, I didn't realize this about Prince, but he had, he had worked actively to remove a lot of his music from streaming services. Yes. I, I know uh, that. Except for title. And, and so for people who wanted to dive into his work, if, if they didn't own his music, radio was one of the main sources on the day that he died for people to go and immerse themselves in the sounds of Prince. So a number of radio stations took that to heart. Um, in particular, the current, which is a public radio station in, in Prince's home base of Minneapolis. Mm. And the current played nonstop Prince in chronological, chronological order on the day that he died, starting at around noon until around 10 PM. And then they're actually, going to do another special um which will air 
before people listen to this podcast, but another special that they're working on is going to air on Friday, April 22nd for more than 24 hours. And it's going to be his music from A to Z. I don't know if it'll be archived, um, but it's interesting to think that The Current is spending that much programming time in yeah. a two-day period well, to Prince. I have a really... Um, I I was thinking... So this goes back a little ways. It To me... This is why radio exists. This is what community radio is for. Commercial radio can also do this thing, but only if it is staffed by um, human beings who are allowed to express what's in their heart into the microphones and and with the with with the ability to 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 pick the music that they play. So it's something that commercial radio is capable of, but not necessarily in the habit of doing as much. And like there's the idea of sharing in real time, and this is also on uh, on this week's Radio Survivor podcast, Matthew is talking about um, radio's superpower being that it broadcasts to audiences who share a collective experience in real time. At the moment that the, that the show is on the air, that's what they're all hearing. And, and the idea of um, collectively mourning a celebrity which is like the appropriate way to do it like why should we mourn a celebrity in in private we didn't know him in private we knew him in audiences and so i i just i just as soon as i found out the news i wanted to turn on my radio and hear other people feeling feelings and hear the music um and it's interesting because not all radio stations can turn on a dime like that. And so I found myself um, channel flipping until I could find that community radio station that was engaged in that activity. Yeah, I I think you're not alone. And, and I think a lot of people quickly found out that The Current in Minneapolis was playing all prints, um, people from all over the country, apparently. Yeah. Did they take calls? It sounds calls? like they had to up their... Um, they had to up the number of listeners that they could allow because so many uh, people were tuning in. I hope people gave them a little, a little bit of a a, stipe, a tip for that one. Maybe, yeah. um, but I wanted to, I wanted to share a a quote from one of my friends who um, he's actually a DJ too. I don't think he currently has a show, but um, Howard Ryan, who was DJ Shmijay at KUSF, and he's also been at the community radio station started by some former KUSFers in San Francisco. So Howard Ryan, he was in San Francisco yesterday, and this is what he wrote. I realized something today when I was walking through the financial district in San Francisco this afternoon. I was listening to The Current out of Minneapolis loudly on my headphones, doing their all-day in chronological order Prince Marathon, and we're at 1984. DJ just played DMSR, Purple Rain next, right? So I'm waiting for the light to change on Kearney, and suddenly I am playing air guitar to that solo and Let's Go Crazy. This is not like me, but today I'm like that. And when a few blocks later the title track comes on, some tears start rolling out of nowhere. I realize there are probably thousands of folks back in the Twin Cities doing the same thing at that very moment, listening to that same song. Damn. So, you know, it's it, it was an amazing moment for him to think about the fact that he was simultaneously listened to listening to the same thing with so many other people at the same time. And, and that's incredibly powerful. And 
we have fewer and fewer of those moments. Um, you know, when we're driving in our car, how often are we listening to the same station as the people in the car next to us? It, right. It's not as often as it used to be because there's so many more choices. But there was a feeling yesterday, I think, that a lot of people may have been listening to the same thing at the same time and sharing in that grief. So I, I think, you know, radio had that ability to help people through their emotions, you know, following the death of this, you know, huge superstar musician. Yeah, I hope I hope that if people who listen to Radio Survivor have uh, have a little bit of of pull at radio stations around the country that they that they do what they can to make room for that kind of special programming um, uh, for the next go round. I mean, there's still time now to flood the airwaves with love for Prince's music, but I felt the same way when David Bowie died that like all I wanted to do was turn on the radio and hear my radio station talking about David Bowie and playing David Bowie music and opening the phones to, to people who had thoughts about David Bowie and hopefully uh, people who knew him. I, I, I tuned into WFMU's stream at the time and was lucky enough to hear an interview with the, um, the keyboardist who played with David Bowie um, on a lot of tours and a lot of albums. And so that was like, that was what I wanted the most. I wanted, I wanted reactions and feelings and, to sh- and sharing and music and uh, that's I, that's what radio is here for, and that's why it, it needs yeah. to keep going. Yeah, and Prince is not on Spotify, so there's no there's no right. Spotify memorial playlist at the moment. Well, that's, exactly. That's yeah, I mean, wonderful. and maybe this is a good chance for some people to uh, you know remember what makes radio great. Um, you know, bringing it back to college radio, I was also searching around on social media, and a lot of people shared stories of first encountering Prince on college radio Mm. or memories about playing Prince on college radio. Um, I'll I'll share a few tweets that, that I ran across. Chandra Greer wrote, first time heard Prince was late night. You of Michigan college radio. I want to be your lover. Fell in love forever. Feeling this loss. Um, You know, and it continues into, into more recent years. Keith Chavin wrote, I listened on my grandma's old radio to a print show, a college station, never turned back after that. And then other people remember playing prints on their college stations. Bill Harnsberger wrote, I spent four years spinning records at Otterbein College Radio Station, WOBN, from 82 to 86. Gee, think I played any prints? And other people talked about how, you know, their their kids were going to play prints on their college radio shows this week and that was going to help them through this other people talked about having print songs as their theme songs for their radio show or as the songs they closed out their show with um and other people reference playing prints as being a subversive act in college radio which it sounds like it could be subversive for a variety of reasons um so one person wrote about thinking they had broken broadcast guidelines so perhaps there was content that was a bit racy in some of his songs and so maybe that was breaking certain station um, rules just reading the titles to some of his songs are pretty much um would 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 make a conservative station manager or audience uh alert the fcc so yeah so there was some of that that. and then and then even even today you know there was conversation at the station where i dj about 
you know, is it appropriate to do a print special? Is that too mainstream? So, you know, those debates, because he Funny. became such a superstar artist. So, um, yeah. so he could be controversial for a variety of reasons on college radio. Well, uh, are you listening to your radios, uh, in the, in lieu of Prince's death and hearing things at your station that either, um, fill, fill you up with, with praise or scorn, let us know. Uh, drop us a line. The email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd really hear, we'd really like to hear from you how your how the stations in your communities are handling uh, such a large event. Because I really think that radio is, is the one medium that was, um, that that's why it's here is for us to share these things. Okay. So uh, speaking of feedback. Oh, yes. So we, we got a little bit of feedback um, in Radio Survivor podcast number 42. We talked a bit about the college radio vinyl thon yeah. that happened on Record Store Day on April 20th. And it was a day when stations were encouraged to play vinyl, um, which was a great thing. And the station where I DJ, KFJC, um, people played vinyl that day. One of our DJs did a two hour vinyl set. Which was great, right? Um, and and I I didn't I I didn't intend this, but apparently um, some people interpreted our discussion of the vinyl thong, vinyl thon, <laughs> as having. A, 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 there was a tweet that um, where somebody thought we were scoffing it. Was it me? And was it was it I how I come across? I don't. I don't know. I, <laughs> well, I I was. Um, what was the tweet? I don't know. If, oh. So the tweet was um, Nathan Thomas, who's a friend of Radio Survivor. He's the music director at WMUL Radio at Marshall University. Hi, Nathan. Um, yeah, hi. So he wrote, weird how the Radio Survivor podcast tries to be inclusive to non-com radio, but most of the Vinyl Thon segment was spent scoffing. Oh, gosh. So I, <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote back immediately saying, ah, you know, I didn't mean to scoff and... Um, you know, I know I was confused by stations that seemed confused about how to keep track of vinyl in their playlist. So I might have um, that might have come across as scuffing. Um, yeah, I but took in- that more of just like a, a modern day tragedy that 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 you, it's the paperwork required to keep a radio station online uh, makes vinyl a little more complicated to play. Yeah. Um but in the in the course of our conversation on social media, Nathan and then also another music director from Gettysburg College Station, WZBT, um, they both chimed in about some of the challenges that college radio stations have in even acquiring vinyl. So um, I hadn't really thought about that, that a day like Vinylthon was was different depending on what kind of vinyl library your station had. So the WZBT music director wrote, it's tough enough for us to get a CD, let alone vinyl. Where do they think all this wonderful vinyl to radio is coming from? Um, And he adds, not all college radio stations have equivalent servicing and not because we don't want it either. So, you know, they said, Yeah, so some stations, the only vinyl they have might be old classic rock LPs. And so they didn't necessarily want to play that on a vinyl thon because then they would sound like mainstream commercial radio stations in their area. So um, 
I thought this was really, really valuable to hear that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I will second that. Um, anybody and, who oh, listens and- to our voices and ever feels uh, feelings <laughs> is, um, gosh, record a voice memo and tell us how you feel. If we have, if we have misspoken or, or spoken exactly what we meant to say, but you didn't like it, that's... Um, there's nothing that I like more than the idea that you and I aren't just talk, just having a Skype call right now, <laughs> that there's an audience for us. So le- I'd love, I love hearing about it. Well, and it, it's such a great, it's just great to hear different perspectives. Um, yeah. Nathan Thomas said that they get, they get sent less than 10 LP records a year. So it's, it's really different. And, and I admit I'm at a college radio station where we get sent a lot of vinyl and our music department also has a budget to go out and buy vinyl. Yeah. So we're adding a lot of vinyl every week. And so, so we have luxury. So we have new vinyl that fits with our air sound that we play all the time. And not every station has that has that situation. I've also been to college radio stations where they don't have functional turntables right. or where they make DJs bring in their own needles or cartridges. Yeah, because um, those needles can go missing. Yeah. So so there are a variety of different situations in college radio stations. So a vinyl thon is not as simple as it might sound. If you have a, if you have no vinyl, b, if you have no turntables, um, and c, if you have vinyl, but it's just not the kind of vinyl that you really want to play on your radio station. So, so I do feel really lucky that I'm at a station that has a very deep record library and. You know, I'd love to hear people's suggestions on how their stations are accessing new music and how their stations are getting serviced by record labels and promoters. I, I certainly sympathize being a former college radio music director myself. And I remember writing letters to record labels, begging for music. And, you know, it was a struggle. We wanted, there were lots of things that we wanted so that we could play cool things on the radio and, Often we didn't get them, so how do how do stations deal with that? Um, yeah, and yeah, I would definitely love to hear from more music directors about those challenges with getting music. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I feel really lucky being a podcast producer that that there are people who have uh, strong opinions about what we're talking about, and we should we should be connecting with them uh, when we when we make this podcast and. And the only way we can pull that one off is for them to reach out to us and and uh, help help ex- give us the tip that we're missing something. Podcast yeah. at radiosurvivor.com, among yes, other things. But Twitter is also a wonderful way to reach out and and react to to the podcast and uh, set us on the right track if we've gone astray. Yes, it's it's true. You know, we don't have all the time in the world to explain our thoughts. So sometimes, <laughs> who knows? I can't even remember what I was thinking at the time. Other than I know, you know, it might just be for me that um, that vinyl. Yeah, it just might be where vinyl is in my life, which is, um, I wish I had room for it because it is important, and I understand the difference between um, music in analog and music on digital, but. My my tiny and uh, stale vinyl collection um, is buried, and my turntable is in a storage unit, and uh, vinyl's not a part of my life at all, and I kind of miss it. So maybe that's the, and it's it's not coming out anytime soon. There's a lot of other things that need to come out of deep storage before 
before vinyl does, but maybe that's just where I am at these days. Well, so yeah, you sounds like you have the same challenges as many college radio stations, yeah. as it turns out. Yeah, <laughs> including the financial problem. Yeah, and that, I mean, and there are stations that do have vinyl that's inaccessible, actually, now that you're mentioning that. So um, I've heard rumors about, or I've been at stations where they say they have vinyl off in deep storage somewhere. So I don't always get to see the entire vinyl collection when there is one. So, you know, that certainly means that DJs at those stations don't necessarily have access to that either, which which is another another challenge um, that, you know, we didn't talk about when I was discussing this with these two music directors on social media. But, um, you know, your station might have completely inaccessible vinyl as well. Yeah. So, yes, many, many challenges in college radio. And I, I appreciate the feedback from from both Nathan at WMUL and also from the music director at WZBT. So thank you both. Yeah. And let us know how your, how your Prince tributes are going. Yes, indeed. Tell us how you are responding to the death of Prince. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us this week. Sure. Happy as always. Yeah. So that's it for today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, of course, as always, the email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can also you can also let us know what you think in 140 characters on Twitter. We're also on the Facebook if that's where you're living, your social lives, as well as your intellectual lives. Of. And of course, there's the Radio Survivor forums where you're always welcome to engage with both us and the uh, and the other members of the Radio Survivor community. And uh, speaking of community, one last uh, ploy, one last pitch to you, the listener. You've listened to this entire episode, uh, therefore you're a huge fan of the work. Or I can imagine uh, perhaps your hate listening to the to the Radio Survivor podcast. You're, you're not a fan. And yet there's something in the show that that keeps your attention. So either you like it or you don't. But either way, you're passionate about the same things that we are. Uh, Reach out and say hello. That's all I'm asking. Uh, Yeah, sometimes we want you to rate and review us on iTunes to get our uh, podcast to bubble up in the algorithmic rankings. Sure, we often ask you to give us a dollar uh, to the Patreon campaign so we can sustain the work and grow our ambitions for uh, bringing more people onto the show and, and paying for them for their time, bringing more people into the blog and paying them for their time. Uh, but but forget all that for now. You've listened to the full 117-minute episode uh, l- much longer now that I've added these credits on at the end, and I want to hear from you. I, wanna, I, I just want you to drop a line uh, to podcast at radiosurvivor.com and uh, let me know what your favorite radio station is. Let me know which radio station uh, hooked you when you were young, I'm assuming, and, and brought you into the world of community radio. Let me know if, if you only like podcasts. Uh, what is your favorite uh, other podcasts? What, are, what, is, what is keeping your attention? Um, because I really want to hear from this audience. Uh, I am intrigued. There is an audience. It is real. And I would love to know more about you as individuals. So podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much to Paul 
and to Jennifer and to Matthew. What a wonderful day. Always one of my favorite days when we get um, a a Radio Survivor uh, hat trick. It's not a hat trick when there's four of us, but uh, we'll come up with a different sports ball metaphor another time. Uh, Thank you so much. See you next week.